You're listening to Straight from the Pulpit. Here you will find sermons taken directly from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. We preach Christ, study the Word of God, and help the Christian grow spiritually by applying God's Word to their lives. For more information or to read the pastor's blog, go to sbcverona.com. That is sbcverona.com. So last Sunday morning, we were talking about um, the history of Baptists in America, and we really just talked at the very beginning outset of uh, Rhode Island basically being uh, the only uh, Baptist state, per se. And I'm going to have more to say about that uh, today. But we talked about the very beginning of uh, the Baptists here in America with a church in Newport, Rhode Island, under a pastor by the name John Clark. Uh, he started this church in 1638, um, probably a year uh, before another man who is believed to have been, uh, who is believed to have started the first church by the name of Roger Williams. He started his church in Providence in 1639. Um, and we talked about how uh, many of the colonies had their own state churches. And I was going to uh, talk about that a little bit more today as well. It's apparent that this idea of religious liberty um, is distinctly a Baptist contribution to the United States and to the world, really. And you say, may think to yourself, well, that's a pretty big claim that religious liberty is a Baptist contribution to the world. Well, think about it like this. Up until this point here, there really was not religious liberty. Maybe in Switzerland, there was a, a period of time where they were able to worship somewhat freely, but even that was contained to a certain extent and caused them to cross the ocean to seek this new, new world in order to be able to worship how they want. Unfortunately, when many came to the new world, they set up their own church states uh, when they got here. And like Massachusetts Bay, we talked about how it was its own church state, and many people, many even Baptists, were uh, persecuted uh, there in the Massachusetts Bay colony. Thus, Rhode Island gets its beginning uh, because people began to leave those colonies and come to Rhode Island, and many Baptist churches began to be founded in this area of Rhode Island, and it became a hub for religious liberty, but it didn't just stay that way. Now, of the 13 colonies, original 13 colonies, only three of those colonies allowed for some religious toleration. Of course, that in and of itself is not religious liberty, but religious toleration. Uh, complete religious freedom was only found in the colony of Rhode Island. The other nine colonies, uh, they all had state-supported churches, and with that, it also means uh, a clamping down in anything and anybody who disagrees uh, with the religious systems of that time. Since America's infancy, um, Baptists were often considered or viewed as anarchists. Um, and, of course, you could look all the way back to the time of Rome, right? And uh, Christians were blamed as to be anarchists. They were called all sorts of things. Um, that they, you know, worshipped devils and that they were, you know, against the, the Roman emperor and a whole host of other, you know, accusations that were made against early Christians. Uh, but those same accusations uh, were made against Baptists early on, that uh, they were anarchists. But what they, it wasn't that they were against all government because government is an institution given by God, ordained by God. 
It wasn't that at all. It was this unholy union of state and church, you know, forcing its rule upon the people in that area. That was what they were against. They wanted religious liberties. We want the freedom to worship as we want, and we don't think the government should have any say in that whatsoever. And of course, you find people like that in America today. And I would dare say we're probably thinking, you know, along those same lines today that we want to worship God as we see fit. And we don't think the government should have any say. We should be able to stand in our pulpits and we should preach the word of God freely, whatever we want to say from the word of God. And the government needs to keep its nose out of our business and not regulate it. Now, some, um, there's been times throughout the past where governments have tried to regulate that in the United States, even as recently as in, I believe it was uh, Houston, Texas, maybe, uh, where the, the mayor of the city was trying to um, regulate what, so the sermons in the city were, it might have been Dallas or Houston, one of the two, but were trying to actually regulate the sermons that were being preached uh, to be more tolerant and inclusive. Of course, that didn't go over uh, and was not tolerated, but you know, the Baptists were not anarchists, but they were often criticized and seen that way. If we look at early America, um, there were 58 Baptist churches organized from 1639, uh, the, the, when the first one was founded, which might be 1638, to 1750. So 58 Baptist churches here in the colonies. Uh, that's a lot of Baptist churches around uh, for the number of people that were here. But there were hundreds who were jailed. Uh, and beaten because of their beliefs. Uh, much, we don't, there's, there's one person that we can read his writings, if you're interested, to find out uh, what kind of persecutions were going on amongst the Baptists during this time. In other words, what were the state churches, even in the American colonies, prior to uh, it become, you know, prior to uh, the revolution, what kind of persecutions were they undergoing? There's a, a gentleman by the name of Isaac Bacchus, B-A-C-K-U-S, and if you're interested in reading about this, you know, that time period, um, he wrote about it. Isaac Baptist, sorry, Baptist, Isaac Bacchus, uh, B-A-C-K-U-S. He was a Baptist preacher, and he was one of the only ones who wrote about it during that time. He was born in Connecticut in 1724. His mother was jailed because she refused to accept Puritanism. Uh, and we've talked about a little bit about Puritanism in the past. Um, but then after that, he decided to go on a 39-year-long crusade supporting religious freedom. He rode over 60,000 miles across the colonies uh, from north to south, uh, 60,000 miles um, from Maine to South Carolina, uh, preaching and also pushing this idea of religious liberty. Um, his speeches were often on the subject of religious freedom. He wrote several books and pamphlets all on this theme that the church and the state must never be united. He went and spoke before the Continental Congress. Uh, he also spoke before the Constitutional Convention. You know, there's a group of well-known men uh, that he went and he stood before this Constitutional Convention as they were attempting to come up with a brand new constitution for our nation. And he went and he spoke before them as well. We move ahead a little bit to another gentleman, another Baptist pastor by the name of John Leland. He was from Virginia. He was also very responsible for, um, well, largely responsible for forcing this issue of religious freedom on the founding fathers. Uh, not, that, not necessarily the founding fathers weren't receptive, but somebody has got to champion the cause because all of these individual colonies prior to the revolution had their own state churches. Now we're forming our own constitution. And after that, 
maybe the Constitution didn't say enough about certain things, and so they added the Bill of Rights to, to add um, certain things to the Constitution, which they felt was necessary. Leland, he was a very popular pastor in Northern Virginia. He was friends with Thomas Jefferson. He was friends with uh, James Madison. He ran as a delegate uh, to become a member of the Virginia Convention um, that was going to go and ratify the new, brand new United States Constitution. His opponent in that race was James Madison. Leland was the, was the favored. He was going to win. He had a much larger following. He was much more popular. And so Leland and Madison actually met together at a place that is today the Leland-Madison State Park. They met together and uh, they discussed what they were going to do about this upcoming election. Madison was able to convince Leland uh, that he would push forward this idea of religious liberties uh, and that he would make it of paramount importance if Leland, you know, stepped aside and, you know, did not run. And that's ended up, that's what happened. Uh, Leland ended up setting his race aside. Madison was able to secure the election, but only after he guaranteed, you know, that there would be an amendment to the Constitution that would secure religious freedom for all of America's citizens. So by the efforts of Madison, Thomas Jefferson, there was a Bill of Rights that was introduced to be an addendum to the Constitution and add extra rights uh, to American citizens in 1785. And what is the very first amendment in the Bill of Rights? Well, it is the right to religious freedom. Uh, and we um, have men like, uh, well, a couple men that I mentioned here, we have uh, men like uh, John Leland to thank for that, and Isaac Bacchus, uh, James Madison, and, and no doubt others that we can thank for pushing this idea of religious freedom. Remember how I said that the idea of religious freedom was largely a Baptist idea, uh, and here is the evidence of that. Um, it wasn't, you know, the Presbyterians pushing this. It wasn't any of the Reformed churches pushing this, or certainly the Roman Catholic Church pushing this. It was the Baptists saying, no, you know, we have been attacked and persecuted under every religion there is, under every denomination there is all across the world and all across time from the time of Jesus himself being persecuted by his own people, the Jews, and the apostles being persecuted almost wherever they went. Um, Baptists have always been persecuted uh, because they bear the truth and they won't back down and all of these church-state marriages hate it no matter where you take it. Now, what happens when the American Revolution comes along? Well, by then, the Baptist influence in America had grown a good bit, and uh, Baptists caught the spirit of patriotism. They gave their money to the colonies, uh, to the cause of the battle. They, uh, their ministers preached uh, the gospel to the soldiers. Some of the ministers laid down their Bible, picked up their sword, and, and went into battle. Uh, some led entire their, their congregations into battle. And there's some really interesting stories about that uh, that I'm not going to get into this morning, but interesting stories about preachers who preached on Sunday and then took their flock with their muskets on Monday and went out to battle, and in some cases against loyalists um, who were loyal to the Redcoats, loyal to uh, the British uh, Empire, and fought against them. Uh, they supported the adoption of the Constitution and of course the First Amendment you know, with religious freedom. And that, that growth in Baptist in America wasn't just due to Newport you know, and John Clark alone. There were also 
more Baptists emigrating, or I should say immigrating, uh, into America from Europe. And it continued on uh, as the numbers continued to grow, uh, even from the British Isles. And they brought some of their Baptist beliefs and evangelistic zeal with them. There was a group um, coming from the British Isles, from Baptist churches in the British Isles, no less, uh, who came to a certain tract of land in the U.S. This land was located, uh, well, it, William Penn was responsible for giving away this 30,000 acres and saying, I want this 30,000 acres uh, to be given to um, Welsh men as they come in and immigrate into the U.S. And it became known as the Welsh Tract. Uh, it was, to today, it's part of modern-day Maryland and much of Delaware is this Welsh Tract. And many of these Welsh who were coming in were coming from Baptist churches over in England. Well, where did they come from? Um, okay, we talked about, you know, Baptists who were already here. In fact, even John Clark, he came from a Baptist church in England. Um, other, uh, other men that we have talked about who are Baptist preachers here in America, early America, they also came from England uh, and were trained there in Baptist churches, which seems a little ironic today because... You know, England spiritually seems so cold uh, today. And any Baptist churches in England, I've not been to any, but this is just what I've heard from missionaries uh, who have gone over there, just how, how religiously cold uh, it is over there and how difficult it is to start a church and to uh, get people interested in it. But um, a little historical context, uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Gildas, and he wrote about the gospel coming to England, and he said that, the, go that um, the gospel was first introduced in Britain during the reign of the Roman emperor Tiberius. And we think about that, we're going way back in time here. He wrote that the gospel first came uh, to England during the reign of Tiberius. This was uh, during the time Jesus was crucified. So that's the time period we're talking here, AD 30 in that area. He suggested that evangelists who were sent by the apostles came from France to Britain around AD 63. Um, remember that Rome invaded Britannia, that's what they called it then. Uh, they invaded Britannia from the south and began to work their way north, but only made it so far. Uh, there were areas which were just too far for them to be able to um, conquer and hold because of the uh, the Picts and the Scots and uh, even the Welsh who were up there. And the, this, the Welsh were part of those that were never able to be conquered by the Romans. However, the Romans and the Welsh did come to some sort of a peace agreement. And to the point where many Welsh even became a part of the Roman army uh, that was there occupying much of uh, the, Brit the British Isles at that time. And many actually traveled to Rome. It was somewhat common for uh, them to go and to visit Rome. And in AD 180, there were two Welshmen by the name of Phaginus and Damacanus. Uh, they went and they visited Rome. And while they were there, they got saved. And they became Christians and surrendered to be ministers of the gospel back in Wales, uh, where they had come from. So they returned. And it was that year that the Welsh king, um, let me find it here, lost it. Lucius, the Welsh king Lucius, also got saved and began to spread the gospel among his people. Tertullian wrote this. He said, uh, concerning the British Isles, and here's some quotes that back up the claims that have been made that I've read thus far concerning the gospel coming to the Welsh. In the second century, Tertullian wrote this, there are places of the Britons which were unaccessible to the Romans, 
but yet subdued by Christ. Romans weren't able to conquer it, but Christ had. Uh, later, Origen wrote this, The power of God our Savior is even with them which are in Britain are divided from the world. Again, they're on the outside of the wall, uh, walls of Rome, so to speak. Um, Balius said that the churches of Britain also were exactly constituted according to Christ's pattern. Uh, Jeffrey of Monmouth wrote a book, and he wrote this. It says, In the country of the Britons, Christianity flourished, which never decayed, even from the apostles' time, amongst whom, saith he, was the preaching of the gospel, sincere doctrine and living faith, and such forms of worship as was delivered to the churches by the apostles themselves, and that they, even to death itself, withstood the Roman rites and ceremonies. Uh, and so you have this birth of, from, of the apostolic church, you know, di directly descended from the apostles there uh, in, in uh, England, you know, amongst the Welsh. Of course, then the Saxons come along, if you know anything about history. Uh, the English Saxons come along. They're brought in by the Picts and the Scots to help uh, to fight the Welsh. And they end up driving the Welsh up into just a small northern portion of their land. A gentleman by the name of Austin in 8597, he found that the old Britons, the natives to Britannia, were primarily in Wales, and they had been driven to the north by the Saxons. Uh, and so Austin, he arrives here to where it is, and what did they find when they got to this northern part of Wales? They found a college containing some 2,100 Christians who had dedicated themselves to the work of the ministry. So he created a council because he wanted to try to bring these Welsh Christians over to the papal Roman church. So many of them came to this council and he sought a compromise with them. We'll let you live, we'll let you continue on so long as you follow these three things. One, you celebrate Easter as Rome had determined. Two, you give Christendom to their children. In other words, uh, infant baptism. Other, time, other, other ways it's called pedo-baptism. So you celebrate Easter as Rome determines. You baptize your children, your infants. And third, that you should preach uh, Catholicism to the Saxons. Um, those are your three criteria and we'll leave you alone. They refused. No surprise there. Uh, they refused um, because they were purer uh, than that which Austin had brought. And in turn, Austin stirred up the Saxons against them and uh, some 1,200 ministers were slaughtered as well as many other delegates that were there representing the Welsh. There was a great slaughter because they refused to give in to what was done at the time. Here, the, the um, Baptists did continue in the north of Wales. The Catholics continued in the south, but... With the action here done by the Saxons, uh, the Baptist faith uh, was almost made extinct in England because of how many that were killed. However, remember we talked about the Waldenses. Uh, this is a similar time period. The Waldenses left from Rome and they went out into uh, the area surrounding Rome, out into the valley, the Valds, you know, out into that area. Uh, and continue to worship or try to worship in freedom there in the Piedmont, these same crusaders of righteousness never, never acknowledged or received the Pope's supremacy. And it's from those people uh, who withstood uh, Rome's push upon them, even to the death, 
that descended uh, the Baptist churches of England where these men, like John Clark and others, Roger Williams, who came over to America and started Baptist churches over here. I talked about uh, the Welsh tract already. I want to talk about some names of some folks here that um, started churches there in the Welsh, in the Welsh tract. Uh, remember, it was the, the area of land from uh, Maryland to Delaware. Many names, maybe some names might stick out to you. In 1663, John Miles, uh, along with several members of his church, came to America from Swansea, Wales. Um, it was the act of uniformity in England that forced them to have to leave their homeland. They brought their Baptist principles with them over here, and they started a church that was located 10 miles east of Providence, um, we have Thomas Griffith. He immigrated to America in 1701 along with uh, all of the membership of his church. Think about that. You know, you say, okay, listen, we've got to go. There's um, trouble here. We can't continue to worship as we want. So let's all pack up our bags. Can you imagine if I were to tell you, like, all right, I'm moving the church to, you know, South America or something like that. Are you all ready to go? Um, I imagine some people are like, no, 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 thanks, preacher. I'm fine. I'll just stay right here in Virginia. You know, this is where I was born. This is where I'll die. Uh, they were seeking religious freedom. Now, you might change your mind if our religious freedoms were threatened, if we were no longer able to meet, uh, if the government was coming down or other, the state church was coming down on us. Uh, you might be a little more inclined to go and seek out religious freedom someplace else. Now, this is what they did. The whole congregation moved and came over to America. Uh, 16 members um, came over here to America, and they settled in Pennepec, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, two years later, they moved over to the Welsh tract. Um, they sent many ministers to further the gospel in America from England. Among these are Elisha Thomas, Enoch Morgan, Jenkins Jones, Owen Thomas, Abel Morgan, and David Davis. Um, Nathaniel Jenkins, he immigrated to America in 1701. Um, Jenkins, he became a pastor of the Baptist Church in Cape May, New Jersey. Uh, Hugh Davis, along with eight members of Swansea Church of South Wales, were sent to Pennsylvania. Uh, and in Chester County, Pennsylvania, they warned, uh, organized the Baptist Church in Great Valley uh, in 1710. Abel, well, I'm sorry, Abel Morgan, he pastored the Baptist Church in Philadelphia. Uh, John Burroughs, um, he was from West England. He came to Philadelphia and later to Middletown, Middletown Pennsylvania. Uh, in 1737, the Welsh Tract Church in Pennsylvania um, sent 30 members to go down to the PD River in South Carolina and start a church down there they called Welsh Neck. Because, uh, well, they were, they're all from Welsh Baptist churches, and they went down to, have you ever driven down, uh, what is that, 77? Maybe, I think it's 77 or maybe it's 85 and you see PD as you drive through it. Must be, it must be 85. Um, nobody else ever see the PD River Basin. It's P-E-D-E-E. -E -E. I always thought it was funny. <laughs> Might be two E's in there, I can't remember. Uh, I thought that was a weird name. It was weird even back then too, apparently. So they took, sent 30 members to go and start a church down in South Carolina. Griffith Jones... He was a pastor of the Hengood Church in Wales. I don't know how to say it in Welsh. Um, he came to America in 1749 and became a member of the Welsh Track Church and became an associate pastor. Morgan Edwards, uh, he was educated in Bristol College, which was a Baptist institution back then uh, in England. 
he came to America and became a Baptist pastor in Philadelphia. Uh, Richard Jones, Robert Norton, Caleb Evans, and I could go on with many, many other names. Um, my point is this, you know, Baptists came to America seeking actual religious freedom, not the freedom to carve out their own tract of land to worship exactly how they want and not let anybody else worship how they want. They wanted actual genuine religious freedom, which they first found in Rhode Island. And then um, the Baptists began to spread from that area. And then they continued to come over from Europe uh, and settle over here as well. Robert Norton, he was a ordained Baptist uh, minister from London. He came to Virginia in 1714 and organized a Baptist church in Burley, uh, which was the first Baptist church in Virginia at that time. Uh, there were 16 Baptist churches in North Carolina that originated as a ministry of his church there in Burley. Uh, I think that's a good thing for a church to do, uh, to reproduce itself. That's, um, that's one of the things that we are called to do, not just to see new Christians get saved and come into the church, but for us to reproduce ourselves elsewhere. Uh, and of course, what do we need in order for that to occur? Well, we need several things, really. We need um, somebody uh, who is called of God to go and to start that ministry. We need people who are called of God to go with them uh, to uh, get that ministry going. We need a calling of God for a place and a people uh, where the ministry needs to be started. Uh, there needs to be a vision. You could say, well, there needs to be money and there needs to be hymnals and pews and a building and all that other kind of stuff too. But ultimately there needs to be a vision and there needs to be a core of spirit-filled people. And that's really what is necessary. Uh, but it needs to come uh, from the Lord placing his call upon somebody or somebody's uh, to go and to start that work. There was a branch of Anabaptists uh, that... Uh, moved over from Germany to Pennsylvania, and they settled down in Germantown, and they were known as Dunkers. Um, Anabaptists were making their way over as well. There was a in Philadelphia. There was a convention of churches that was formed. Uh, maybe not a and a convention is not the right word. An association of churches of pastors that was formed, um, and it was together. They they wrote the Welsh Baptist Confession. Some refer to it as the London Baptist Confession. Um, Benjamin Franklin printed it, and he called it uh, the Philadelphia Convention of Faith. And together, this group of churches became known as Regular Baptists. However, the danger of that organization became evident. Um, you know, anytime you get some sort of a, an organization of churches, you begin to get the ones who have the biggest churches and the most influence or who are the most dynamic or charismatic uh, tend to rule things, uh, tend to push their weight around on some of the others. Well, I have a bigger church, I have more money, I have more influence, so I should have a higher position in this association, so to speak, and uh, therefore you should listen to me. And very quickly it can become a hierarchy, which is one of the things that they were running from, because the Roman Tur Catholic Church had the hierarchy, um, the Presbyterians, all, all of the uh, Reformed uh, you know, churches, they all had their hierarchies that uh, they all had to obey and listen to. Independent Baptists were independent. You know, there was no uh, hierarchy, and so they, they recognized that, and so they decided that they were not going to let that happen, and they said that such churches there must be, agreeing in doctrine, practice, and independent in their authority and church power before they can enter into confederation with this association, is not to be deemed a superior judicature or having a superintendency over the churches, but subservient to the churches. You know, we have an association here 
uh, the Shenandoah Valley Association of Independent Baptist Churches. It's a really long name. I don't remember all the, the, you know, the titles and letters of it, but um, it's just an association of independent Baptist pastors here in the valley. It's a time for us to, you know, to gather together and to hear some preaching, to commune with one another, uh, and to encourage one another. Uh, as you know, the, many pastors are all going through the same thing, especially back, back during COVID, uh, to just talk about the problems they're having and uh, to pray for and encourage one another, and just to see other people in the same situation, you know, that you're in. And but you don't let that become in headship over the church, you know. Nobody at that association has any standing over Shenandoah Baptist Church, nor do I have any standing over any other church. Uh, it is just uh, a, a time to associate with one another and to encourage one another. There were uh, well over, I'm trying to find the correct number here, 53 churches as a member, as members of this association by 1762. Now, all that said, we're talking about, you know, the Baptists. We kind of talked about other churches. We talked about what was going on in the Methodist movement when we got up to the Great Awakening. And next week, I, <clears throat> I'm going to get back into the Great Awakening again, but this time from a different perspective, because we talked about, you know, George Whitfield. We talked about Jonathan Edwards, uh, the Wesleys. Uh, they were Methodist in their leanings. They had some differences in doctrine from what we would have. There was some really good things going on during that time. But what were the Baptists doing during that time? Um, were the Baptists just over, you know, some people would say, you know, poo-pooing in the corner, just like, you know, uh, were they involved in this? What were the Baptists doing during that particular time uh, while the Reformed churches, you know, uh, were, or the Reformation churches were getting um, revived, so to speak, while uh, the man on the street, the drunkard on the street, uh, was was getting revived. We'll talk about that um, next week. Uh, but rather than just focusing on what everybody else was doing, I want to also spend time talking about, okay, what were these Baptist churches doing? Again, this whole the whole purpose of this study is to get a better, it's obviously not thorough or exhausting, exhaustive, might be exhausting <laughs> to listen to me teach it, but um, don't laugh at that. <laughs> Uh, to not get a, an exhaustive study of everything about all the churches there are, um, but to get a better understanding uh, of who we are you know, as Baptists, why we are that. Uh, there are many that want to drop the name Baptist these days because there are others who have taken the name and, and, and have used it uh, to gain a very bad reputation. Uh, just the same thing with independent and fundamental, those names, a lot of folks are wanting to drop those names these days. Uh, because of others who have taken those names and have used them to get a bad reputation. And we don't want to get lumped in with all of them. Uh, there are many different shades and colors of Baptists, independent fundamental Baptists. I believe there's like 32 different kinds of Baptists uh, out there, Baptist denominations. Like I said, many, many shades and colors. Uh, but what, what really set us apart all throughout the ages was our close adherence to the Word of God, which you might th say, well, what church wouldn't adhere to the Word of God? Well, as we've seen, um, some churches uh, were trying to hide it away from their people, and even their own ministers, even their own priests did not have access to the words of God. They just had to rely upon what the hierarchy pushed down the pipeline to them to push back out to their own people. Uh, their close adherence to the Word of God, that it needed to be readily available to each person, 
to read and to commune with, with God. While today that sounds like, well, duh, um, that wasn't, well, duh, back then. Uh, their refusal uh, to join in, to compromise on doctrine, to just get along with the state and the state churches, the refusal to compromise, uh, the refusal uh, to be involved with infant baptism, among other things. Um, that's one of the things that really separated them throughout all ages. And they bore different names from Novationists uh, and Donatists, uh, the Moravians, um, the Waldensians, many different names, Anabaptists. Uh, ultimately becoming, you know, choosing their own name, which was Baptists, which we bear today. There's a reason why we bear that name. We, if we could, we would just drop that and call ourselves Bible-believing Christians. Uh, but unfortunately, it's necessary that we draw a line that distinguishes us from the, the, the mass of religious confusion and chaos that is out there. It's necessary that we draw the line that clearly defines who we are and what we believe. And that's why we choose that name Baptist because that is what has set us apart from all of these other religions throughout all, throughout all of history um, is this idea of you know, a believer getting saved and then being baptized by immersion. Uh, that is what separated us. So we'll get, again, get back to the Great Awakening again next week and talk about what the Baptists were doing during that particular time as well. You've been listening to Straight from the Pulpit podcast from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. Be sure to follow this podcast and share this sermon with a friend. And if you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.